You know, we can be like that. Be right on top of something and be so casual with it. He can be as amazing to you as he was the day you got saved. I pray he would be. I pray you'd still be excited about him. Don't ever lose your first love. Don't ever get casual with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is our Savior still amazing to us? Or do we just come to church to fulfill an obligation and go through the motions? You know, if the Savior is not amazing anymore, the problem is not with the Son of God. The problem is with us. We have an amazing Savior. God help us to recognize that. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark once again, where we're studying in the sixth chapter, Mark chapter 6. We have a video that we made for Masters Baptist College where they, they're interviewing some of the students, past and present, and, and I'll never forget one comment from one student. They said, Masters Baptist College is amazing. And I, I always love that part because that's a great word, amazing. Amazing means fabulous. It means uh, marvelous and wonderful, extraordinary. And the word amazing means something is just like stupendous and colossal and, and beyond imagination. Well, I'd like to talk today about our amazing Savior. And we're going to see him do some amazing things in this passage here. In Mark 16, beginning in verse number 45, it says, And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And he went up into the, unto them, unto the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed. There's our word. Sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore and when they were come out of the ship straightway, they knew him, and ran through the whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages, or cities, or country, they laid the sick in the streets, and besought him that they might touch as it were, but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him, were made whole. We're going to be talking today about our amazing Savior, but let's pray first, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the opportunity to be here today and learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ as we find him here in the Gospel of Mark, our amazing Savior, one who calmed the seas and walked on the seas and did all these incredible things. 
Father, we just pray now that uh, if there be any in our midst who don't know him as their Lord and Savior, they'd come to a saving knowledge of him today. For we pray now and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I uh, grew up on a lake, at least in the summer. We spent all summers at the lake. And so from the time I was a little boy, I loved water skiing. Well, about 15 years ago, uh, somebody taught me how to barefoot ski. And I'd never done it before, but he had a wetsuit, and I was able to use that wetsuit, and he had a fast boat, and he was able to teach me how to do it. And so I borrowed his wetsuit for a while, and pretty soon it just became mine. And one year I came back and found these words written in the collar of it, just on the inside, I walk on water. I walk on water. Well, I've kind of walked on water before, but I cheated. You know, I, I went 40 miles an hour, and that's really due to physics and, and gravity and all those kind of things. But the very expression, walking on water, we hear that and we go, nobody can do that. Nobody can do that, except the Son of God. The Son of God is amazing. He could defy physics. We shake our head at the thought of somebody standing on water or walking across water. But he did it. It reminds me of a picture I have. Uh, I go fishing up in Canada every, every summer with a, a preacher friend of mine. And that lake up there is always going up and down. It has a, a dam that lets water out. And, and if it's rainy, the water rises. So we're always looking out for boulders. And we've gotten to where we know where they are. One year there was this huge boulder about the size of this altar that was just like a half inch underwater out in the middle of the lake. And I said, we got to get a picture of something. So I had him bring me up to the edge of that boulder, and I got off and, and stood on the boulder, and he drove way far away, and it looked like I'm out in the middle of the lake, and I'm walking on the water. Again, cheating a little bit. But you cannot walk on water, although Christ did. Now, why did he? Was he just showing off? Was he just trying to, you know, spook and, and scare the pants off the disciples? Hey, you know, good one, <laughs> Well, our God has a sense of humor, and we're made in His image. But He wasn't trying to show off, and He wasn't trying to scare the disciples. Let me just give you a little bit of inside information. When Christ walked on the water, the very next day, if you remember a discourse that took place over in John chapter 6, Christ talks about Him being the bread of life. Okay, that came right on the heels of this. It was a hard saying, they said of it. It was a tough sermon. And there were many that that went away from him and walked no more with him. We read that in John 6. It says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus Christ knew that was coming. Jesus Christ knew the pressure would be great. Jesus Christ knew that even his disciples might get a little timid and, and tempted to cave in, as it were, and that the devil was after them, perhaps more fiercely than anyone else. So I believe he does this miracle on purpose. He walks on the water, not to just amaze and stun his disciples, but to build up their faith, because they were going to go through some things. So he does two things. First of all, he goes and he prays for hours. We're going to be talking about that in just a second. And then he performs a special miracle in front of them that cements their faith. And from that point on, they were never the same. In fact, the next day, as the crowd was leaving, Jesus turned to Peter. Remember that? And he said, will you guys go away too? And Peter said, where? Man, you're, you're the Son of God. We're convinced now. And so I believe there's a reason behind this miracle here. Let's take a look at it. We see what I call, first of all, a sacred priority. As we look at this text, there's something that's number one. There's something that's priority number one. 
and it's a sacred priority. We read first in verse 45, and straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before into Bethsaida. Well, he sent the people away. Now, remember what he had done. He's sending the people away after feeding them. And, and, and the them is like 5,000 men, thousands of more women and children. And so he feeds this huge multitude of thousands. And afterwards, I love divine precision. Remember how many baskets of food they took up? Twelve. Remember how, how many disciples are there? Twelve. They each had a, a, a basket of food now at that point. We find out here that, that they're going to depart. And, and the town Bethsaida is mentioned. If you look behind me, they don't really know where the ancient town of Bethsaida is. They've, they've excavated a few places and they think they know where it is. But they know this, whatever they've dug up, it was a village that was a suburb of Capernaum. Capernaum was the hometown of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Grand Central Station. It was, it was home base. It's where he operated out of. And so a short, a short distance away, you have uh, this suburb called Bethsaida. It's kind of like uh, Fargo and West Fargo used to be, and they've kind of grown together since. But, but they were going to sail in the northwest direction as they had finished feeding the 5,000, and they were going to take in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice a few interesting things here. In verse 45, it says in straightway, He, Jesus, constrained His disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side. That word constrained there means He insisted. Evidently, they were resisting. It actually means He forced them. I don't know if He had to forcefully say, Fellas, get going. But for some reason, they were reluctant to head out. And, and I thought of this maybe for a couple reasons. Maybe uh, they were basking in the afterglow of, of, of feeding those 5,000 and, and the cheers of the people and, and, uh, and, and, and thought, hey, we don't want to move on here. I mean, we, we're celebrities here. There's this huge popularity. And so maybe they wanted to stay around for that. Or maybe they were reluctant and Christ had to constrain them because, well, they didn't want to part with him. I mean, look what he just did. And, and we're not letting you out of our sight. So they said, no, you go with us. And he kept saying, no, you guys go ahead. And, no, Lord, come with us. And, and so for whatever reason, he had to constrain them. And, and he said, I will catch up with you guys later. And he knew he would. And there's no time to argue about it because of something else that was urgent. And it's not recorded here in the Gospel of Mark, but it's recorded over in the Gospel of John. Here's what was going down. In, in John 6.14, it says, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Here's what I think happened. Christ, of course, he knew everything, but he sensed the rumblings and the intensity of the mob here going, this is him, this is that prophet. You say, what prophet? Well, way back in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses alludes to a prophet, a special prophet that would be coming. I don't have time to go there, but the people are going, this is him. This is the prophet. Let's make him king. Let's make him king. Let's make him king. And they're, and they're all talking about making him king. And he says, fellas, get going here. I got to get out of here. So he constrained them to get in this boat and get going. Now, later on, he's going to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Same thing. They're going to be throwing down those palm branches and saying, It's time! Our king is here! What's this king business? Well, the Jews at that time were under Roman oppression. It was a yoke they hated. And they would have done anything to get it off them. So they were looking for a deliverer. 
that prophet, or a Messiah, as it were. And, and once they found him, it was like, up in arms, boys, and attack Rome. And so all they were waiting for is a leader. And, and so they thought, this is it. This is the time. Attack Rome. Now, later on, Christ is going to, to make his entry into Jerusalem there, and they're going to be saying the same thing until he goes into the temple and he cleans house there. Remember that? And they, they kind of go, huh? Okay, uh, forget this king business. We tried it a couple times, and after he cleansed the temple, they were, they were dazed and they were disgruntled with him, and, and they were uh, disenchanted with this Jesus of Nazareth guy, and that's when the tide turned. And it was never the same. But here's the confusion. The Jews knew their Bibles well enough. They had their Old Testament. And they, they saw all these prophecies about this coming Messiah. And this king, this Messiah who would rule and reign as a king. Now, Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign as a king. But that's not what he came to do the first time. When he comes the second time, there's something taught in the Bible called the Millennial Kingdom or a thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on this earth before eternity begins, if we could put it that way. And there's a lot of verses in there, but the first time Christ came, it was not to set up a throne and a, a, a crown and, and wield a scepter and, 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 and be a king. It was to suffer. And Isaiah 53 describes this suffering Messiah. The Jews didn't get it. They still don't get it. In fact, they read Isaiah 53 and they think, well, it's talking maybe about Israel and the turmoil and the suffering that they've had to go through. No, read Isaiah 53. Read uh, 300 other Old Testament prophecies. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It describes his, his suffering, his, his, his pain, but the Jews missed it and they are still waiting for the Messiah to come. By the way, there's a one-world ruler going to come on the scene. The Bible calls him the Antichrist or the Beast. And when he comes on the scene, the Jews are going to say, Okay, our Messiah is finally here. But they will have missed him. It was Jesus Christ. But the first time he came to suffer, the next time he comes, it will be to rule and reign. But they're, they're saying right now, Let's make him a king. And Christ is saying, Fellas, get out of here. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to do something here we don't want them to do. And so in verse number 46, we read on. It says, And when he had sent them away, he departed unto a mountain to pray. He went off to pray. Now, the, the, the people wanted a public revolution. Jesus Christ wanted private intercession. See the difference? They have something totally different in mind than how he's thinking here. And we find he's going to go off and he's going to pray. And he's going to pray for hours. It was routine for him. This wasn't something new. He wasn't showing off. He had a secret place where he went to pray. And we find in verse 48, just to skip ahead, when he finally catches up with the apostles, it's the fourth watch of the night. Now let me just teach you something you might not know here. The fourth watch of the night was sometime between 3 and 6 in the morning. The Jewish day stopped and started at 6 o'clock in the evening. The first watch was three hours from 6 to 9. The second watch, three more hours from 9 to midnight. The third watch, three more hours from midnight to three o'clock. Are you doing the math? So he had been praying somewhere around nine hours or eight, nine hours when he finally shows up to them. He goes off into that mountain by himself and he prays in his secret place. That was his secret place there. He had places all over. Wherever he traveled, he got alone. We read about these in Mark one thirty-five. We saw it already that in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place 
and there prayed. Here it's a solitary place. We read in Luke 6.12, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray. It was a mountain that time. We read in Matthew 6.6, He says, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. We find out that he who dwells in the secret place, according to the psalmist, shall remain in the presence of the Most High God. Do you have a secret place? A place where you meet with your Creator and your Savior every single day? Are you consistent with that? I talked in the hour before this one about how important that is. Lest we backslide from the relentless pressure that the world is placing on us and the brainwashing taking place out there, we need something to combat it. We need to put something inside to resist that which is coming at us from the outside. It's so important that we have this place, this secret place, I remember years ago, I, uh, I called a, a fellow who was in the church where I was the assistant pastor before I came here, and, and he was a deputy sheriff at the time. And his wife answered the phone, and I said, is brother so-and-so there? And she said, he can't come to the phone right now. And I said, well, um, it's kind of important. Uh, maybe you could uh, find him. And, and she said, he's in the secret place. And I thought, praise the Lord. Here's a deputy sheriff, and here's a Christian man, more importantly, And he has a secret place where he gets alone with God every day. Do we have a secret place? Jesus Christ had a secret place. He went up onto the mountain. Here he's got this this crowd and he sends them away because he wanted to spend time with his heavenly father. That solitary appointment that he always had. Here's this crowd that was waiting to put a crown on him. Think about this. A scepter in his hand and, and a diadem and a royal robe and all that. You know, think of this. There was a temptation right then and there to bypass the cross and to just have an earthly kingdom. Have it now. Why wait until, you know, that thousand-year millennial reign? There was a temptation there. Maybe Christ himself, who was in all points tempted like as we are, remember, said, I got to pray. I got to get along with the whole... I mean, he's thinking of the agony and the, the blood and the suffering of Calvary and how he could bypass all that I'm sure he thought, I I, I need to pray. I need to be strengthened. Because the very next day, we find out in John 6, when the crowd was leaving him, he said in verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. The people wanted to make him a king. Maybe that sounded pretty good at the moment. But he said, my father has a will for me. And after a night of praying about it, he said, I'm going to do what the father wants me to do. I came to do the will of him that sent me, not what I feel like doing. We see here, first of all, this sacred priority. But secondly, we see this spooky phantom. In verse number 47, it says, And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. Now, the ship is out there still bobbing around the ocean. I kind of... I kind of picture the apostles still hanging around, thinking that maybe Christ will change their mind, knowing that in a boat they could get up to Capernaum and and, and beat the Lord there easily. And so maybe they're kind of hanging around, and and with a lingering hope, they're they're thinking, you know, when he takes off, he'll kind of skirt the shore as he starts walking uh, where we're going to meet with him. And maybe he's just going to hail us down and and say, fellas, I'm, I'm tired and I'm ready to come in that boat now. So they're just sticking around, waiting to pick him up. Well, that was their plan. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't his plan at all. Jesus had a plan. He knew what he was going to do. He knew the whole walking on the water thing was coming. He had a plan, and it was different than theirs. And may I say to all of us, God's plans are often different than ours. 
Have you noticed that? Have you been saved any length of time enough to observe that we make our plans and, and we add it all up, we carry the wand, we connect the dots, and, and we say, this is how it's going to happen. It doesn't happen that way. And you say, well, why? Let me give you an old verse, okay? Isaiah 55, 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. This has got to be one of the greatest truths a Christian could remember. Because if you're like me, I plan, I scheme, I instigate, I'm proactive, I, you know, and I think, okay, this is where it's heading, and I cannot tell you the times it hasn't gone there. Why? God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. And the longer I'm a, I'm a Christian, the more I, I've surrendered to this and realized this is where it could go. God has a higher plan than ours. And if we remember that, folks, you know what that'll do? That'll keep us from having dashed expectations, right? We have these expectations and over and over again, oh, rats, they got dashed. You know, what's really happened over the years, I've seen what God does instead of what I want, and it's, it exceeds my expectations. It's, it's better. It, what actually happens is delightful. And so we, we've got to remember and the disciples need to remember this. What God has planned is something far greater. They had their intentions. We'll pick up Jesus. He'll get tired, da-da-da. And uh, no, Christ had another plan here. Now, in verse number 48, it says, And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. Now, there he is up on that mountain, and he's praying. And let's just remember, he's got a vantage point. He's able to see what's going on down there. And he's observing them, I believe, as he's, as he's praying for them, looking out there going, Father, there they are. That's the hope of the world down there in that boat right now. I mean, if the gospel is going to spread around this world, it's, it's got to be those fellows right now. It's got to be them. And, and I call this praying by sight. I don't know if you ever do this. Uh, walking and praying or driving and praying or maybe just uh, uh, praying over your kids as they're sleeping in their bed and, 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 and being able to look at what you're praying about. The prophet put it this way in Lamentations 3, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. And there's Christ on top of that mountain and he's praying for those fellows and, and, and so much is, is going on in his heart. In verse number 48, it tells us that the wind was contrary to them. The wind was... Con so they're rowing. The Lord is watching. And the wind is against them. Doesn't that describe life? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> As you think about it. There we are. We're going through life. God's watching. He's looking on. And it's like that wind is against us. All the time. Have you ever uh, done carpentry in a high wind? Have you ever tried to to deck a rafters or, or put sheeting on the side of, a, of something that's framed in. I was building a house one time. It was an incredibly windy day. And we were putting four by eight. I was putting four by eight, working by myself, trying to put them on the sidewalls to put the sheeting on. And uh, you, it, it's a kite. I mean, it, it just takes you all over. The neat thing was, though, on a certain side of the house, when I got the plywood against it, ta-da, I didn't even have to hold it in place. It held itself in place, and I just started nailing it on and so on. But if you've ever worked in the wind, you know how, how fatiguing that is. Here they are, and they're rowing, and they're rowing. And in verse 48, it says he saw them. So here he is, he's looking out. Here's the, the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. It's really just a lake. Maybe six miles by 
10 miles, 11 miles or so. And here he is in this elevated place, and he's watching them. He saw them, even through the dark, obviously. He, he saw them, even on his knees. He didn't have to be watching them. He knew they were out there. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And so finally, after the first watch, the second watch, the third watch, it's the fourth watch of the night. And God is finally ready to move in. We read this in Luke 12, 38, where Christ says, And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. God operates in watches. And may I say, historically speaking, I think right now we're in the fourth watch. I don't know about you, but if you follow current events and world events, I think it's the fourth watch. I think we're in the fourth watch. It's exciting. You say, well, it's, it's, it's getting so ugly. No, it's getting gloriously dark. These are the most exciting days I think a person could live in as we near the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's choppy. I know that. The waters are choppy, and it's, it's a time of distress. But, but rest assured, He's going to show up. He always shows up. At times of distress, He's there for deliverance. We read this in John six nineteen. It says, So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea. Same scenario, but it tells us how far the apostles had gotten. If this lake is six miles across or whatever it might be, they're about halfway across, according to this measurement. They have been rowing for eight or nine hours, <laughs> and they're only halfway across the lake. And they are in a state of exhaustion. These are experienced fishermen. They grew up on that lake. From the time they were little boys, they knew that lake like the back of their hand, but now they're getting nowhere. They're struggling. They're exhausted. And here's what kind of caught my thought. Jesus watched them for hours struggling. Think about that. Christ saw them struggling. Why didn't he move in sooner? Why is it that, that God often lengthens our trials before he offers deliverance? Have you ever noticed that? He just kind of stretches it out. And, and you go, when is this thing going to end? There's things I'm still waiting for him to end. And you go, when is God going to move? And why hasn't he done something yet? Why didn't he do something here? Well, God is more interested in making us what we ought to be than the, uh, the efficiency in, in how we do it, and how much productivity we realize in getting it done. He's making the man. He's making the woman. He's growing us up. He's giving us experiences in life. He does this on purpose. He's trying to make us stronger. He has a, a, a bigger purpose in it all because he sees a bigger picture in it all. And it'll be worth it all. It would be worth it all here. What was going to happen to these guys would blow their mind. And it was worth the hours of struggle. Now, notice this in verse number 48. It says, And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, notice these next words, walking upon the sea. It's like, huh? Wait a minute. Nobody walks on water. Back to that again. Nobody. Well, we have an amazing Savior, don't we? Our Savior is amazing. And, and yep, He can walk on water. Way back in Job, Job 9.8, speaking of the Father of, of the Lord, it says, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Our God can defy physics and He can defy gravity. In fact, what was the final miracle that Jesus Christ did before He left this earth? He, he ascended up. He defied gravity. 
And so he could certainly walk on water, right? This was no big thing to him. Now, I like this in verse number 48. I smile when I read this. It says he would have passed by them at the very end of the verse. He would have just kind of walked by them. Why? I thought about that. Why? Well, maybe he didn't want to freak them out. It's scary enough seeing this apparition out there glowing or whatever it looked like. And, and if it's coming at you, yeah, it's even worse, right? And, and so he's going to kind of save him a little of that. So he's just going to kind of just deflect and walk right past. But I don't think that's the reason why. I think there's a, a principle that as we study the Bible, we learn this about the Lord. We learn this about our God. Um, the Bible says we were made in God's image. So there's something about us that's like God. Well, we want to be needed. We want to be wanted. And we have a, a Lord who wants to be wanted and, and doesn't force himself on us. He wants to be invited. Let me show you something that took place the night Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's walking with two men on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, 28. It says, and, and, and they drew nigh or near unto the village whither they went, and he, Jesus, made as though he would have gone further. He's acting like he's going to walk on. He's making as though, I, I need to get going, fellas. And you know the story. They, 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 they end up constraining him and then begging him to stay. And finally goes, okay, I'll stay. He wanted to know he was wanted. The Lord is like that. Think about that. I was... Um, out of town this last week, and I was at a preacher's meeting, and a preacher I know drove from about, a mile, about an hour and a half away to be there, and I found out that the day before, he had been there before me, and they had services in the morning and in the evening, and he didn't want to drive all the way home, come all the way back, so he just kind of stayed there at the sanctuary, they turned off the lights, and he tried to catch a nap on the pews, and he said, oh, boy, they came in, they were vacuuming, I couldn't sleep, I got... so I said, well, why don't you come just to the motel with me and, and get a nap, whatever. And it was kind of like, are you sure? And honestly, I'm sure he wanted to. But we don't ask ourselves. We don't invite ourselves. Our Lord didn't want to assume anything here. I, I heard of, uh, of a preacher. In fact, it was John R. Rice who was at a preacher's meeting with two other preachers years ago. And they were talking in the front seat about going and playing golf and assumed that he was part of the conversation. He was in the back seat and, and he assumed he wasn't. And so anyway, they went to play golf later that afternoon, and, and they knocked on his door, and he already had his jacket on, but they said, Dr. Rice, we're going golfing now. And he went, oh, I didn't know I was going with you, fellas. And, well, yeah, but, but you didn't mention it to me. Are you sure? And, oh, yeah, please come. I, I won't be a bother. Oh, no. And, and it, it was like they had to talk him into it. And he, and, he, and he said, well, let me just tie my shoe first here. And he reached over to tie it, and three golf balls dropped out of his pocket. He wanted to be asked. We want to be asked, don't we? Our Lord wants to be asked. And so he made as though he would have... And they went, wait, that's the Lord! They invite him into the boat. He was hoping, not assuming. Now, notice in verse number 49, it says, But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. It would have had to be a spirit in their mind. Nobody can walk on water. And yet they see something out there walking on water. So they, they're going, it's got to be a ghost. Got to be a ghost. Because you don't walk on H2O. It is impossible. Unless you are the creator of the universe. Right? Can't the one who made the water walk on the water? 
In fact, in Genesis 1.9, it says, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. Notice I've highlighted God said. Who's the God speaking there? If you know your Bibles, you know that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In John 1, we find those, those words. The God who spoke the water into existence was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now He could master it, certainly by walking on it. Now He could demonstrate His deity easily there. And it didn't dawn on the apostles what was going on. They thought they saw a spirit. Notice in verse 49, the word spirit. It actually in the Greek is phantasma. Phantasma. We get the word phantom from this. That's why I call it a spooky phantom. They think it is a ghost. And they cry out. The word in the Greek cried out there means they shriek. They screamed. It it was panic time. It's bad enough that they're in a storm. It's bad enough the wind is blowing. It's bad enough they're not getting anywhere. But a stinking ghost has to show up now to make matters worse. And and they're just freaking out out there. And here's, here's Jesus Christ all the while knows what He's going to do and why He's going to do it. And let me just again say, God will often lengthen our trials before He brings deliverance. He has a reason for that. We see the sacred priority in the spooky phantom. Secondly, we, uh, we, thirdly, we see the shocking perplexity. In verse 50 at the beginning, it says, For they all saw him and were troubled. It's like, yikes! And, and imagine yourself. They saw him and were troubled. And in verse 50, he says, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And there is no mistaking that voice. You men here, when you call your wife... And she picks up the phone. Do you say, hi, this is Tom, or this is Bob, or this is... You don't tell them who you are. You just start talking. And they know who you are. And it works both ways. My wife can call me. She doesn't have to... Oh, this is Lori, hon. Of course it is. I know your voice by now. You know, if King Saul can recognize the voice of David calling across a canyon, or if... uh, uh, A dying Isaac can recognize the voice of Jacob next to his bed... Or a, uh, a Rhoda can recognize the voice of a Peter knocking outside. Do you think these guys by this point knew the voice of the Master? They knew exactly whose voice that was. He says, be of good cheer. Be not afraid. It is I. And they're going, oh, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Now we know who it is. You know, God doesn't want us to live in fear. And He calms their fears in the verse 50. He says, be not afraid. What a God we have. He doesn't want us living in fear. Isaiah 43, 2 says, when thou passest through the waters, God says, I will be with thee. They shall not overflow thee. In just a few words, the Lord revives them there and and soothes their storm. Now, there's something else that took place that day, and it's not at all mentioned in Mark chapter 6. Did you think of it? Is there something missing from the narration here? Yeah, what about Peter? Isn't this when he tried to walk on the water? Yep, this is when he tried to walk on the water. It's recorded in in Matthew 14, 28. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, why doesn't Mark record this? Well, Mark wasn't there, first of all, so Mark got the scenario from somebody else. We discussed that as we started the study. Remember who he got the whole gospel from? Peter. So, Peter's either a little bit um, 
embarrassed and leaving that part out. No, I don't think that's the case. I think he's humble. And he doesn't want the narration to be on him. So it's not mentioned here. But Jesus wanted to make Peter's faith stronger. Did Peter walk on the water? Well, for a while. Did he sink? Yep. So he's not there yet. How is he going to withstand that, uh, that crowd the next day that, that picks up and leaves Jesus? Here's Christ making him into what he ought to be. Apparently, he's not strong enough yet. Now, verse 51 says, And he went up into them, into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. I mean, it went from terror to joy and delight and amazement here. The wind ceased. They got the Son of God in their boat, and the wind died down. In Psalm 107.28, it says, Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves there are, uh, thereof are still. Then are they glad, that would describe the apostles, because they, the waves, be quiet. So He, that is the Lord, bringeth them into their desired haven. You know, over the years... Christ amazed people time and time again. And and they would say, who is this? Who is this? Even Pilate, in John 19, 7, the Bible says the Jews answered him, Pilate, by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate, therefore, heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, whence art thou? Who are you? Where did you come from? The Lord Jesus Christ has amazed many people. And every person needs to ask that question. Who is He? Who is He? Who is He? We read this in Matthew 14, after this took place. It says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped Him, saying, Of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. No question about it anymore. Do you understand who He is? We've seen the shocking perplexity, but we see, fourthly, a skewed perception. And very quickly... Verse 52 tells us that they, the apostles, considered not the miracle of the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, for their heart was hardened. He didn't walk on that water to show off. Their hearts were still hardened, and they didn't get it. They were, duh. I mean, they didn't spiritually perceive it. They were not in tune. They were dense. They were out of step. And by the way, any one of us can get that way. We can all get a little spiritually dense if we don't stay tuned in. If we have our antenna pointed toward the world and we're continually taking in what the world is, is dishing out, we're going to get that way as well. Not only were they unobservant, but they were, they were quick to forget. The last part of verse uh, 52 says, They consider not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. They forgot that miracle. He'd already calmed a storm. Couldn't he walk on water now? But we all need reminders, don't we? We see the skewed perception, and finally we see the swarming people in verse 53. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. Now, there's more to it. And again, something is skipped here. But when Christ got in the boat, they didn't keep rowing for a few hours more. As soon as He got in the boat, the sea calmed, and immediately they were at the shore, which they were halfway across before. How did they get from that point to that point. But we read in John 6.21, then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. It's kind of like, how do we get here? You know? He's just continually doing miracles. He was continually amazing. Now in verse 54, it says, and when they were come out of the ship, they straightway knew him 
and ran through the whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. Here we go again. <laughs> He's just got the swarming people around him. And in verse 56 it says, And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought or begged him that they might touch, as it were, but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. Folks, this is now the zenith of his ministry. This is the height of his popularity. Everything from this point on is going to go downhill. Uh, from this point, and especially after what takes place that very day, the John 6 discourse, the bread of life sermon, they, they walked away and they never went back. How could they miss it? How could they miss it? He's, he's healed lepers. He's healed the sick. He's thrown out demons. He's raised the dead. He's got power over nature. He's got power over the supernatural. He's got power over sin and power over death because He's the amazing Son of God. You know what we've 